Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to the fourth special episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Bernard André. Mm. André? Or Andrelli. <laughs> Everybody has different names. We'll just start making them all up. He's French, so he's Bernard André. Ooh, but nice. Gonna, but I'm going to call him Bernard André. <laughs> okay, that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, I've called the episode Bernard André and the Mythologizing of the Tudors. Oh, so this is our counter to Polydor Virgil. Yes, because we weren't going to do Bernard André, but I started reading his book and I, it made me laugh so much I thought we've got to do an episode on him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I was glad we did Polydor because... They are a good counterfoil to each other. Okay. Polydor was quite rational, wasn't he? And he often would wonder, now, is this likely? Yes. Whereas I got the impression that Bernard André never asked, is this likely? <laughs> just, yeah. just did it anyway. <laughs> this is good. There were dragons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not... um. It's not a biographical episode because I've, well, I've pretty much condensed his life into a paragraph, but it's his way of writing history and his book all about Henry VII. So it's sort of a Henry VII biographical episode as seen through the eyes of Bernard André. Okay. Well, having actually, having said that, he was blind. <laughs> <laughs> Smelled, heard through so- Bernard Sorry, Andre. Bernard. <laughs> oh, that was very insensitive. Who was Bernard André? He was born around 1450 in Toulouse. He earned a doctorate in canon and civil law. He joined the Augustine Friars. So wait, canon and civil law, civil law of Paris or civil law of England? I'm assuming since he's in Toulouse, I it would have been thought it'd be French. French civil law. Okay. But I don't know how much he used it. And I don't know what the similarities are between the different European countries. I don't, because people often okay. studied abroad, didn't they? Yeah. He was very interested in humanist scholarship. He had very poor eyesight and eventually went blind, as I said. Henry Tudor came across him when he was exiled in Brittany, when Henry was exiled in Brittany. And when Henry became king, André greeted him in London by reciting some Latin verse. Hmm. Yeah. You can, you can sort of imagine him popping up saying, oh, remember me? And Henry yeah. thinking, oh, gosh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> thought I'd got rid of you. Anyway, by November 1486, he was effectively Poet Laureate, although the title didn't actually exist by that point. Okay, let's explain what a Poet Laureate is, because I don't think they still exist. They definitely don't in Canada. No, they do. Yes, we've got, oh God, what's his name? Um, Simon Armitage at the moment. Okay, so what is a Poet Laureate? It's a poet whose job it is to commemorate anything that happens of interest to the country. So usually royal stuff, hmm. which is odd. I mean, we don't. We, it's odd that we've just got a poet. I mean, we seem to have a poet and an astronomer, and that's it. I mean, <laughs> you don't have the royal potter or you know <laughs> royal knitter or Be anything. Be amazing! Could you imagine how much money you'd get if you were the Potter laureate? Mm. Oh, everything in like royal purple and blue, so pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In the late 1490s, André was receiving a pension, including other gifts from the king. And in 1496, he became Prince Arthur's tutor. He stopped being Arthur's tutor and started writing his history in 1500. So this is before Polydor Virgil arrived, because he doesn't arrive till 1502. 
he didn't stop being his tutor because of anything bad that he'd done. It was just that King and Prince Arthur had decided to suspend Arthur's studies as Princess Catherine was due to arrive the following year. Right. I think he thought he's probably a bit too grown up now. Oh, he was going to get married and everything. He didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Never too old to learn. <laughs> as recompense for losing the tutor job, Andre was named Royal Historiographer and told to write okay. a biography of Henry. He spent two years writing this book and he abandoned it when Arthur died in 1502. Does this book still exist? Yes. Because we... In penguin form. How did I not find it while we were searching for books for Henry VII? He must have come back to it at a later date, as Arthur's death is actually mentioned, but he doesn't seem to have done much else to it. And it is obviously a work in progress, as there are some gaps in the text. I mean, actual physical gaps. There are bits of white in the text. <laughs> I'll fill that in later. <laughs> well, it's as if he'd, yeah, he thought, oh, I'll fill that in, and then just never got round to it. Never got back to it. Yeah, those gaps have been there for over 500 years. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I know, and I thought I was a procrastinator, but there we go. The main theme of the book is the legitimacy of Henry's position, partly through lineage and partly because he removed a cruel tyrant from the throne. Richard III. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter that Henry's genealogical claim to the throne is a bit ropey. He won in battle and therefore God was on his side, mm -hmm. which is what made the pretenders so dangerous. Because <laughs> what if they won in battle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm then all of a sudden they're legitimate. The fact that Henry VI had sanctioned Henry VII's legitimacy when he met him as a child, in Andre's words, he will have all thing under his power, is what Henry VI was meant to have said. This was vital to the Tudor mythologizing. I wonder if he actually said that. I was wondering whether Andre was the only historian to mention this event. Did Polydor mention it? No. no. It is mentioned in the Margaret Beaufort Every biography for Margaret Beaufort, but none of them are say, saying he said this. Mm. It's all he is supposed to have said. Yeah, I wonder if it is... all came through Andre, and if that's the case, then I wouldn't bank yeah, on it, frankly. It didn't happen. <laughs> Henry VI was already the subject of a myth himself. He was the holy king by this point, rather than the mad, ineffectual one, which unfortunately right. was what he was. So any link with him was beneficial to include in the history. And Andre traces Henry's ancestry back, Henry VII's ancestry back, back to Cadwallader, calling Henry Cadwallader's legitimate successor. So as the Prince of Wales. Yeah, the time between the two men was merely the period in which the Kingdom of Britons was interrupted by the ferocity of the English. So you've got your, your Welsh king, and then there was the uh, bit in the middle, <laughs> and we're back with the Welsh king again. But I don't know why um, Andre should have been so keen on the Welsh king, because you know, obviously he was French. So. Cadwallader was the king of the Britons, which is Welsh in the 7th century. Although not much is known about his reign, except there were two bouts of plague and the second one carried him off. He was given a mythical status by Geoffrey of Monmouth who was about as rigorous a historian as Bernard Andre was. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so who was Henry related to? Cadwallader or John of Gaunt? I mean, the latter could be said to be his genealogical link, while the first okay. was his political one. Andre was quite happy to use both lineages. You could have. I mean, isn't it like, say, go back 12 generations and you're related to everybody? True except that Cadwallader might have been mythical. 
Oh, okay. I take that back. <laughs> well, lots of people did that, didn't they? And Caesar was related to Venus. Oh, yeah. Who was the... Yeah, they, they traced their lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember who that was now. The link with the Britons was quite quickly dropped from the Tudor myth, at least as far as the pageantry went. The most prominent link, as far as Henry was concerned, was calling his son Arthur and making sure he was born in Winchester. I presume he started to play it down because of his reliance on Yorkist support. I mean, the Yorkists weren't interested in whether he was Welsh or not, really, were they? Right. Andre wasn't the first to vilify Richard III as part of the Tudor mythologizing. Rouse was the one who first described Richard's deformity and monstrous birth. He was the one from the Rouse rolls that we've yes. come across a couple of times. Dominic Mancini, who was watching the goings-on of 1483. I don't recognize that name at all. No, he's a chronicler. I don't think he even spoke English, so I mean, it's a bit dodgy. Wrote an account stating that Richard acted from ambition and lust for power. Doesn't everybody who ends up king? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of have to be ambitious and want power to be there. (laughs) But the essential ingredients of the crooked back villain that Moore and Shakespeare picked up are in Andre's life of Henry VII. Andre's history offers an insight into the Tudor legend in its early years. And it reveals what people close to Henry were thinking at the time when the long-term security of the dynasty was in doubt. Very much in doubt in places. Andre's style of history writing is very different from what we would expect from our historians now. But the fact that he invented speeches and conversations doesn't mean he was a bad (laughs) historian for his day. (laughs) They said this. Wait a second, they're in two different countries. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we don't do that now, but Virgil and Moore both did. Yes. And the classical historians that Andre was trying to emulate did, Herodotus, Thucydides, Suetonius, they all put words into their subjects' mouths Yeah. that they couldn't possibly have known about. And some of the people to whom Andre gave speeches, he did know personally or knew people who knew them, so he may have got some idea of what they would have said. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here. I don't think he deserves it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, really? I don't know. <laughs> well, that was what they would have said in an ideal world, given that there'd be time for extremely lengthy speeches before you do anything. Right. There are tropes involved in writing royal biographies, and I should imagine that Polydor Virgil probably did some, at least some of these. Adding verse, a dedication to the patron, mentions of personal connections, Biblical and Mm -hmm. classical precedents, a lot of those in André. The historian reflects on his own inadequacy. Yes, I am not good, I am not worthy, but pay me anyway. He summarises the work's structure, he discusses the noble ancestry of the ruler, and the book serves a political purpose. Well, God knows this one does. And the difference between André and others is not so much in style as in degree. The history of Henry VII is more of a hagiography than a history. Okay. Everything Henry does is on the most auspicious day, and onlookers <laughs> marvel to see everything he does. Tutors are amazed at his cleverness. He's generous oh. to his enemies, even to King, King Richard's dead body after Bosworth. Which, However, no. although Andre is hanging up the bunting and striking up the band for Henry, the story he's actually telling is one of one crisis after another. Oh. A quarter of the text is taken up with Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck. 
Well, if you think about it, it kind of felt like it when we were reading about it. There was just nothing but crises after crisis after yeah. crisis. Yeah. Well, he treats these these episodes as much as Henry did. I mean, sometimes he says it's the most awful thing that could have happened. And sometimes it's just a mere trifle. Mm. We're used to the idea of Shakespeare being Tudor propaganda. And in Andre, we can see where this started. So let's read the book, or at least parts of it, not the whole thing. I was going to say, this is a long yes. episode. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to say. If you have a glass and a pe pencil handy, you can ding every time you come we come across something that you don't think is entirely historically accurate. Right. The dedication. It starts. Oh, most invincible of kings. <laughs> and then he launches immediately into references of, uh, to Cato and to Cicero. And then he okay. decries his own abilities, saying, despite the mediocrity of my talent, although you may detect coarseness and poor quality in my style and declare hereafter that the subject of my writing is beyond me, I shall attempt to write, if not admirably, then at least truthfully, well, if not truthfully, diligently <laughs> and as elegantly as possible with the help of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the famous saying of Jerome that small minds do not readily comprehend great things and that things ventured beyond one's strength are doomed in the very attempt. I don't think anyone has explained to him about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Saying don't no. bother to read it, it's oh, rubbish. Just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> At the start of the history, Andre starts... The royal lineage of each parent of Henry VII is most noble. Ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> he then follows Edmund Tudor's lineage back to Brutus and to Cadwallader on his father's side. And oh my gosh, this is nothing but ding, 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 yes. ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Brutus, incidentally, is not the et tu Brute. He was a legendary, and I repeat, legendary descendant of Aeneas. Also legendary. <laughs> Yes, he was the first Brutus that the second Brutus was supposed to be descended from. Yes. If you listen to Totalis Rankium's, oh, you have to be a Patreon of yeah. Totalis Rankium to hear that. Yes, you do. Yeah, he's a descendant of Aeneas, who's also legendary. So we're going right back to the Battle of Troy here. <laughs> and he was the founder and first king of the Britons. This is Brutus. On Edmund's side, there were the links to the French kings via his mother, Catherine de Valois, which seems considerably more on solid ground. Yes. In fact, Andre says, Henry excelled all Christian princes of former ages and his own time through the antiquity and eminence of his nobility. Ding. That's not what people thought at the time. No, or now. No. <laughs> <laughs> Andre's interest in the lineage is very much right at the beginning with the first kings of Britain. And then suddenly we're whooshed through time and space to the Many wars, disastrous losses, and massacres of Richard III. So um, mm. he wasn't particularly... As a historian, he had, seems to have very little interest in history. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember massacres and many wars for Richard III. He didn't really have time to do that. It says it here. It says it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andre says quite categorically that Richard murdered his brother, Edward IV's two sons. You know, he doesn't tie himself up in knots about it like I did. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I think there's a difference there 
Back then, you had to prove your innocence. Now we are, you are innocent till proven guilty. So we have that in us. Mm. We don't want to say it because we don't have the proof. Whereas he's like, nope, you are the murderer. Now you have to prove that you're not. Yes. Yeah. Possibly I think that's holding a very hot bit of metal or something. Yeah. Death. Oh, no, no. Judgment by cake. <laughs> <laughs> I want that one. <laughs> have you heard of that? No. One of the judgments was you had to eat a cake without choking. That That is one that the judge could do. Was that for fairly minor crimes, I'm assuming? Mm, not really. Oh. It was just another option. Horrible Histories talks about it. They're a funny <laughs> lot, aren't they? <laughs> I know. If you don't choke, then God says you're innocent. I'm pretty good at eating cake. <laughs> yeah, but if you're really nervous... Oh, yeah. Yeah, possibly. Somebody apparently did die by the trial by cake. Uh, <laughs> I oh, know. <laughs> they just get weirder and weirder, these Tudors, don't they? For those of you who can't see, you should have saw Lucy's face. <laughs> <laughs> After Richard, Henry liberated the land by divine and human right. He quickly overcame and slaughtered Richard as he deserved and drove his tyranny from the island. After the death of Richard, which pleased the whole kingdom, he began his reign in 1485. Oh, pleased the whole kingdom, did it? Well, he got the date right. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, Andre then writes, was born on the most auspicious day of St. Agnes. He was born at Pembroke Castle, a heavily fortified castle situated there in southern Wales on an expanse that sloped down to the sea, which shows very clearly that his birthday was an auspicious and a happy one because of the natural qualities of the site. What? <laughs> it was not happy or auspicious. Poor Margaret and him almost died, for one. No, and it does seem odd to say it's auspicious because the ground slopes towards the sea. I mean, ground quite often does that, doesn't it? Yes. And also... Pembroke is in mid Wales, not southern Wales. And <laughs> if the land was sloping anywhere, it would be down to the Pembroke River. So oh, I don't know if that's my. as auspicious as sloping into the sea. He doesn't he, he rarely <laughs> bothers to look things up. <laughs> as for his education, as is customary with infant princes, Henry's place of education in Wales varied according to the weather's effect on the body such that with the changing seasons of the year, time was spent in various places to protect his health. No, it wasn't. For a start, Henry wasn't an infant prince. <laughs> no, he was not. And anyway, does that sound very, very likely? He was a prisoner of Lord Herbert, and although he seems to have been treated well enough, it seems unlikely he was wheeled from place to place for the good of his health. No, if anything, they would have just been, okay, this one, the jacks stink, it's time to move so they can be cleaned out. <laughs> and then there's a gap in the narrative here, as if Andre was intending to ask Henry about his schooling, but never quite got around to it. <laughs> but fortunately, Henry was endowed with such sharp mental powers and such great natural vigour and comprehension that even as a young boy, he learned everything pertaining to religious instruction rapidly and thoroughly with very little effort from his teachers. So, really, you think, well, imagine what, what it would have been like if his teachers had actually done their job, <laughs> just sort of <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> and not only the highest disposition for virtue shone forth in the boy, but he also had great beauty. 
You know, there is a YouTube artist. Oh, who is he? Or she? Um, hold on. Let me see if I can find them. They take paintings of tutors, mm -hmm. and it's called, like, Real Faces. Oh, I've seen those, yeah. I haven't seen one for Henry. Yeah, he's actually, they make him out to be quite handsome when they use a, when they reduce his youth. Yeah, so yeah, I, mean, I think he's fine. I mean, he's certainly a good deal more attractive than his son, isn't he? Yeah, and Elizabeth of York is quite beautiful. So, mm. Panagiotis Constantinou. But the the episode is The House of Tudor Real Faces, English Monarchs. And he does all of them. And really, it's quite an attractive family, if that's any accurate hmm? portrayal of their faces. Yeah, I mean, I thought the great beauty was probably the most likely of it all, really. Yeah. Well, due to the political situation, which Andre describes as an evil spirit, Margaret Beaufort had to decide whether to send her son abroad. She wrote to Jasper, saying, I was hoping, my beloved brother, that heaven might show me what to do in these difficult days, but everyone knows quite well that women are weak, imprudent and unstable. What? I therefore earnestly beseech your lordship, whom I have always esteemed as a brother, that if I fail to grasp something shrewdly in this affair, you direct your kind attention to it. Seriously. I mean, maybe Andre had access to the letter. I mean, he was quite close to the king and presumably to, to his mum. And Queen Elizabeth described herself as a weak and feeble woman. But does that sound like Margaret to you? No, no, it doesn't. But admittedly, we don't have any of her letters. So she may have been writing hmm. in the same style as everybody does. But if you go with the Paston letters back to those, none of them start saying that kind of thing. Maybe it's part of this thing of putting yourself down. Possibly. Hmm. She goes on to say, If my son were to remain here with you, I do not know how much I might help him, especially since my lord and husband would not dare resist with his might. And I thought to start with that Andre was taking a sideswipe at Sir Thomas Stanley, but I couldn't yeah. quite work out why, because he's much more complimentary about him later in the book. At least he says he doesn't believe he's a traitor, which I suppose is going somewhere. Or is he still talking about Henry Stafford? I think he's talking about Henry Stafford. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's hard to tell because Andre's not so great with dates and chronology. <laughs> <laughs> After writing the Isabella one, where I was sort of bouncing around to try to keep within a theme, maybe that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And Margaret decides to send her son overseas. His life will be safer on the ocean waves than in this tempest on land. Now, of course, Jasper writes back, You've considered everything so circumspectly and so astutely that almost nothing is left for me to add. Because it wouldn't do Andre any harm to lay respect for Margaret on with a trowel, given that the book is intended for his son. Yes, mm. and the fact that Margaret was still very influential. She was there, probably peering over his shoulder, I should think, as he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> so Jasper and Henry set sail and end up in Brittany, where Duke Francis welcomes Henry with great joy because... To be sure, he knew, for so he had heard from others, that Henry would someday reign in England. He refers to him in a speech to his counsellors as the young prince. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's nothing but like a foghorn ding. Like, what the <laughs> heck? <laughs> and he was amazed, this is, um, the Duke was amazed by Henry's gravity, good behaviour, gentleness, humility and goodness, both inborn and bestowed from above. 
I, that may or may not be true. The Duke was fond of Henry. He was, yeah. But I think you get the picture. I mean, Henry is an all-round good egg. Perfect. And it yeah. radiates from every pore for all to see. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back at home, Edward IV, or Edward Earl of March, as Andre called him, was somehow so vexed and maddened by a fury that he aspired to rule the kingdom as a tyrant. And Andre Alfred thought it's on shaky ground here, because I would have thought, as Henry's still very reliant on those people that were loyal to Edward, but dislike yeah. Richard. But they loved Edward, especially since Edward actually was effectual. Like He made some mistakes, but they were coming back economically under him. They were. I mean, he became he did become quite tyrannical towards the end, but, you know. Yes. They, they, I think most of them did, didn't they? Yeah, they finally get fed up. Mm. <laughs> yes. Andre announces that he can't remember the order that what he calls the internal wars came in, which we now call the War of the Roses. Uh, and I can sympathise with them here. I can't remember the order <laughs> either. But if I were writing a history about them, I would look them up. Yeah. He just announces, I can't remember. Well, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> although we've... I shouldn't say that because we've done that a few times too. Probably. Oh, I can't remember who that was. We did that just this episode. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sorry, Bernard, I take that back. <laughs> but they culminate in the death of Henry VI. Henry VI is murdered by Richard, Duke of Gloucester, no doubt about it. For bloody crimes pleased Richard through and through. Andre then says, I cannot check the tears when I rehearse in my innermost mind the savage, fierce and cruel acts visited upon that man. I might be allowed then to pause a moment in my enterprise to cry out with great proof of sorrow. Oh. I mean, can you imagine Dan Snow asking to stop mid-narrative to go off and have a good cry? <laughs> 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 Andre then goes on to have a good rant at God for allowing the scepter to be wrenched out of Henry VI's hands. The innocent suffer while the evil fulfil their desires. Don't rant against God, though. That's the work of the devil. It's written down. God knows. Mm. Accordingly, after these things had passed, behold, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, thirsty for human blood, was sent by his brother Edward IV to slaughter King Henry himself. This is Henry VI. He drew near him and... And here it stops. What? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I can't think of the phrase and I really don't want to have to read you this piece of paper. So I'm just going to yeah. pause. I'll come back to it later. <laughs> <laughs> Edward IV was frightened by certain omens that Henry VII would succeed him. And that's why he kept trying to call him over from Brittany. But the Earl's mother, a most cautious woman, we're back to Margaret here, saw through the rooms and through secret addresses by messages and in letters, she continually forbade him to return. Which is true. True. That one. Yes. At last, when all efforts had failed, Edward secretly attempted to seize the Earl. Are we talking about the time when he did try and he had to claim sanctuary in a church to prevent himself from being taken yeah, out of Brittany? But... <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> um, well, it, I'm not sure it got that far because... But human cleverness can never prevail against God. For after, he was struck down with an illness and died. Some rather suspect cause and effect there, I thought. 
Mm. He didn't die yeah. because he uh, he tried to get Henry over to this country. Yeah, I don't think so. From overindulgence. Now we get to the true story of the princes in the tower at last. Oh, okay. So this is going to put it all to the rest. Yep, this is this is what happened. After the tyrant, that's Richard, obviously, safe in his London stronghold, slew the lords he knew were faithful to his brother, he ordered that his unprotected nephews secretly be dispatched by the sword. So there you go. That's what happened. So not smothered. Nope. Sword. Hmm. Sensing that the Duke of Brittany was colluding with Richard III, Henry legged it to France, where Charles VIII was very taken by Henry's graceful and distinguished countenance. Rather than just thinking, yippee, I can get political mileage out of this bloke, he was just yeah. completely, completely besotted by him, as was everybody. <laughs> then there's another gap in Andre's narrative, and suddenly we're on the beach in France about to invade England. That was another time you probably thought, I'll, I'll pop in and have a word with Henry at some point. <laughs> Just forgot. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Before leaving, Henry stops for a very lengthy prayer in which he talks of Richard. You see that the tyrant has defiled everything with blood. He butchered the Duke of Buckingham, once dearest to him, and many other innocent people, even heroes of the kingdom. And he murdered his own nephews. See, hmm. people are always saying that Henry never stated that Richard had killed his nephews, but Andreas put the words into his mouth. Yes. So assuming that Henry... Did Henry ever see this? That's what I'm saying. Assuming that Henry did read it, you'd have thought yeah. he'd have vetoed any part he didn't agree with. Yes. So, I don't know, I found that quite interesting. I don't know, I don't know quite what to make of that. Yeah. Andreas is a great one for saying, it will be tedious to recount... And then recounting it anyway. <laughs> and here he says, It would be tedious to recount how many leaders, kings, emperors and large armies were overcome by small bands united together. Besides Xerxes, Darius, Croesus and many other kings, <laughs> so too Spartan, Theban, Athenian, Carthaginian and oh Roman goodness. leaders were defeated by small armies. Victory comes <laughs> not from the number of warriors, but from the hand of God. Oh yeah. Hmm. So was, I wonder if Henry was thinking the same thing when news of Perkin was brought to him. Yeah. And John de la Pole. And Edmund de la Pole. <laughs> Spoiler. Henry's pretty lengthy speech prior to boarding the ship ends with, this occasion, though, does not call for long speeches. Oh, good. And then, then John de Vere starts up and gives an equally long speech. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's just like, the tide will have turned by the time they get going. <laughs> Andre is evidently not much interested in their march through Wales, as suddenly we're at the Battle of Bosworth, where Andre explains that John de Vere was in the vanguard. And then there's another break in the narrative, as if Andre's not at all sure about the battle formation, and he'll come back to it. <laughs> but never does. <laughs> <laughs> and the battle's about to kick off when Andre says, oh, hang on a minute, I forgot to tell you what Henry said when he landed in Wales. So then we go back to that, and there's another long speech. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I wonder what... He, talking to him must have been so scattered. Hmm. I mean, if he's like this when he's writing... When he's thought it out for a while before he puts it to paper, can you imagine trying to speak I to him? I suppose he didn't have cut and paste in those days. I mean, I spend a lot of time moving stuff about and trying to make, the, make it into a coherent narrative. Yes. But, uh, 
Except that you've got those blanks, which kind of show that mm. he didn't move things yeah. around yet. I don't know. I wonder if he just not never got around to editing. This is yeah, his first draft. Yeah, you thought you'd do a, a, a good copy, really, didn't you? Yeah. So wait, this actually got published? Well, he did stop when Arthur died. As if he, I think he was, well, he was obviously very upset by it. But yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if it was published in his, his lifetime or not. But you wouldn't have thought you would publish something with yeah, that with so many gaps in. I mean, if you if you, if you don't quite get to yeah. the end, that's fine. I mean, we still read Mystery of Ed, Edwin Drood, don't we? Um, mm -hmm. And listen to the Unfinished Symphony. But we don't usually expect the Unfinished <laughs> Symphony just to have blobs of silence in the middle. We expect it all to be at the end. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, when Richard III heard that Henry had landed... As a snake feeding on evil plants is inflamed and enraged into madness, he responded like a Hyrcanian tiger or a Marcian boar that has felt its wounds. So Richard, raving and breaking into a sudden war cry, addressed his men. So we've had two speeches from Henry and one from De Vere, and they're all well thought out and temperate and eloquent. And now we have Richard's speech, and it's more like the ranting of a madman. <laughs> <laughs> I order and command you to destroy everyone by fire and the sword, without mercy, pity or kindness. As for the French and all the other foreigners, cut their throat, annihilate them and crucify them, everyone. <laughs> Slaughter the Earl of Richmond himself, without respect to his blood or noble birth. Noble birth? Would Richard have said that? I don't think so. <laughs> no, and, and he wouldn't have called him the Earl of Richmond because he'd given that away. Or, if you can, bring him to me alive, so that after I have devised some new and uncommon punishment, I may slaughter him with my own hands. Mm. So you think if this were on stage, this would be the time for the audience to start booing and hissing, I think. Andre said that Henry sent letters to all the potentates across the land. But the good and prudent Lord Stanley, says Andre, clung to the Earl of Richmond. Which is not how I remember it. <laughs> No. no, the good and prudent Lord Stanley waited to see who was going to win and then came in at the end. Yes. Andre leaves out the battle since he says he wasn't there and doesn't feel qualified. Okay, so he's he's saying he's trying to be humble. Does he ever say, I am 100% biased in this account? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, surprise, surprise, Henry gives a speech in which he talks of his sadness at beholding the slaughter of so many brave men, whom I charge you to bury honourably. This is a bit of a change from what Richard would have done, isn't it? I mean, he was going to crucify yes, everybody. Is. I especially think that the body of King Richard himself should be buried with every due respect. Mm, I wonder if that was before or after they stuck the dagger in his buttock. And yeah, stripped him naked. Hung him over a horse or a mule or whatever it was. Was so it I a horse know. or a mule? Yeah. I thought it was a mule. Andre says that he was in the crowd for Henry's coronation and how he was seized with poetic frenzy and openly recited a poem. A long poem. A very long poem. You can uh -oh. imagine Henry standing there with a sort of rictus grin, wondering when the hell this man was going to shut up and he can get on with his coronation. <laughs> I mean, it sounded as if Andre just sort of called him over and said, Oi, Henry, Henry, come here, come here. I've got something for you. And then they left him standing there. <laughs> Well, you read this poem. Then oh, follows a description of Elizabeth of York. Marvellous piety, remarkable respect towards her parents, and almost incredible love for her brothers and sisters. And she remembers how her father wanted her to marry this handsome prince. 
and then there follows an incredibly gushy, girly soliloquy of the sort that a 14-year-old might make in one of those, you know, those lockable diaries. <laughs> She's about 20 oh, at this gosh. point. She panics. She says, Yet he may be ready to take another for his wife, one across the sea, more beautiful than I, younger, wealthier, worthier. So I don't think she's understood the nature of this transaction, has she? No. Perhaps I might ask my mother, oh, I'm too ashamed, if only I could speak to him. But there, which one of, I'm trying to think of which one of the Henry VII books we read where there was some discussion instead of him taking a French princess. Like when he did not marry her right away, there was discussion of perhaps marrying a French princess to make an alliance with the French. I don't remember that. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we're as bad as him, aren't we? Don't remember. I tell you what, we'll leave a gap yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anyway, she needn't have worried as after the prince had come to know her purity, faith, and goodness, God inclined his heart to love the girl. So maybe it's Andre who doesn't understand oh. the nature of the transaction. <laughs> they were married and they were singing and dancing right across the land. I wonder if people actually were happy. I would have thought it's what they, everyone seemed to want, isn't it? If they yes. were going to have Henry, they wanted to have Elizabeth. Yes, but that was a year later. Mm. They're probably singing and dancing because he's finally got, got around to doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, he upheld a promise. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a while later, a new prince was born, blessed with such great charm, grace and goodness. And Arthur's birth and baptism took place on auspicious days, of course. Of course. When the bright constellation of Arcturus arose. And Andre says, I wrote a poem of 100 verses. Oh... And he starts to write them in the book, but breaks off after a mere two pages because the thought of Arthur's death makes my tongue cleave to its palate. Oh. I bet everyone's thinking, oh, good. <laughs> and here there's a description of Arthur's education in which Andre plays down his own role, because he was his tutor, to show yeah. it was Arthur's brilliance rather than Andre's skill that made him such a good scholar. And he lists the work that Arthur has either committed partly to memory or at least turned the pages of. Which oh. I thought was a bit... It sounds as if he's just sort of skipping through, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Really? <laughs> yes. And he includes here a poem about Arthur's creation as prince in 1489. And for modern ears, namely mine, it was so chock full of classical allusions, it's virtually unreadable. Oh. I mean, I, I know a fair bit about the classics, but... I just thought, oh, for goodness sake, get on with it. I mean, there's so many, <laughs> oh, he's just like this, and he's just like him, and uh, oh. it was too much. No, he was very well thought of in his day, though, um, Andre, as a, as a poet. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I just think it would have been nice if, I know the style then was to be flowery with all these references, but in some cases, you feel like you don't actually get the story because they're too busy trying to compare it to something else. Yeah. And he does so many that by the time you get to the end of them, you've forgotten what he was trying to tell you in the first place. Oh, my Lord. Mm. <laughs> it starts off, this poem starts off, O race of Arthur, issue of blessed ancestors, O pride and most admirable glory of our kingdom. So you're quite quite relieved not to have to read the rest. Really. Yes. Andre then recounts a visit by the papal envoy who arrived weighed down with a sword, gold, gems and a decorated cup. 
And this shows that Henry's reign had papal endorsement. That's what he's trying okay. to push here. And needless to say, Pope Innocent had many great things to say of Henry. <sighs> then a whole load of ambassadors turn up and express their happiness at Henry's victory. But I should imagine that that would be standard ambassadorial procedure. I'm not going to turn up and say we wanted the other bloke, are they? Yeah, because you're there to make a new treaty. Mm. You can't do that if you've just offended the person. No. Then we hear about the murder by the mob of the Earl of Northumberland. But that just mm. seems to be an excuse for Andre to trot out yet more of his poems. And side note for Innocent, though, didn't Henry get his permission before he even went? With a lot of money and gifts and stuff, if I remember correctly. So it makes sense for him to say, yes, you have the Pope's permission mm. and be happy about it. But the other rulers? Yeah, I think that might just be lip service. I think even if you're on the other side, when you send your ambassador, the ambassador doesn't say, we didn't want you. The ambassador True. is there. Unless you're ready for war right now. I'm thinking yes. of Granada and how they said, we're not only not going to give you tribute, we're now making weapons. Yeah, that's true. Lim uh, Limbert Samnel. <laughs> Lambert Simnel. <laughs> it's a silly name, anyway. It goes without saying that there's no ambiguity as far as Andre was concerned. Lambert Simnel was not royal. In fact, right. Andre gets it wrong. He says he was not Edward IV's son. Well, he wasn't Edward IV's son, I suppose. <laughs> but he wasn't claiming to be. He was claiming to nope. be George, Duke of Clarence's son, yeah. So he even gets that wrong. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's basic stuff. <laughs> Andre says that Henry sent messages over to find out all they could about the boy. And then he says, At last, mm -mm, was sent across, who claimed that he would easily recognise him if he were who he claimed to be. But the boy had already been tutored with evil cunning by persons who were familiar with the days of Edward. To make a long story short, through deceptive tutelage of his advisers, he was finally accepted as Edward's son by many prudent men. And so strong was this belief that many did not hesitate to die for them. Now it says, at, at last, and then there's a gap, and it says it was sent across. And then he yeah. tells us what he found out, but he obviously doesn't know who this person who is. Who this person was. I've made it up. I just have to find somebody who actually yes. went. You know, I we're making fun of him getting Edward and George mixed up, but in one of the Patreon episodes for Isabella, I kept talking about Alfred, and it was actually Manuel of Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we talk, we yeah, I know I constantly get the names of the kings muddled up, as you know, because you have to keep pointing it out to me. <laughs> but when I'm writing it down, I don't. Yeah. You know, I have time to think about it. But I mean, to, not to know who Simnel's meant to be, it's, a bit, oh, yeah, it's quite unforgivable, really. Yeah. But then he says rather endear endearingly, Watch what follows. Ooh. And here we really get to know who the who's the baddie of the story as far as Andre is concerned. And it's someone we've met before. So great the blindness, not to mention pride and wickedness, that the Earl of Lincoln readily believed the same story. And since Lady Margaret, yeah. widow of the famous Charles Duke of Burgundy and sister of Edward, was the ringleader of Edward's family, she summoned him by letter. With few aware of such great treachery, he secretly took flight from England and set out in haste to meet her. And so, when as many Germans as Irish were gathered for the expedition, with the continued assistance of Margaret, they quickly crossed over into England and landed on the northern coast. 
So he has got a real down or a Margaret. Yes. The king, as we come to expect, makes a speech in which he refers to Margaret as a trifling and shameless woman. Oh. Who incidentally knows perfectly well that her family were destroyed by her brother Richard. That's, mm. So Margaret also apparently believes that Richard killed the princess in yeah. the tower. Oh, it's going to be interesting seeing what kind of information we get from her. I'm looking forward to her because I've met her in a sort of staccato way and that she pops yeah, up. Same. <laughs> I'd like to fill in the know what happens in between. And you kind of picture her with her little slippers stamping her feet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you trifling and shameless woman. (laughs) It did occur to me that Margaret's role in both Simnel and Warbeck's uprising may have stemmed from a complete inability to take in that her brother had killed her nephews. Possibly. Yeah. It was a theory we didn't look into in the Perkin episode, because there were so many others. Yeah. But maybe she couldn't just bring herself to believe it. Yeah. Since now we know that that's actually what happened. Yeah, trying to admit that your brother killed your nephews might be a little rough. Yeah, especially since she was very fond of her brother, wasn't she? Yes, she was. Anyway, the speech of the king is only two pages long. And Andre says, when he had ended, the Earl of Oxford was ready to respond as before. But since time was short, the king called for silence. So I love the image of De Vere stepping up and saying, if I may add a few words... And Henry say, saying something like, no, leave it, John. Not now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how humiliating. <laughs> the Battle of Stoke then, then takes place, which Henry wins, or rather De Vere mm-hmm. wins. Although as far as Andre is concerned, Henry wins. Yes, of course. Henry, Henry was deep in the battle, covered in blood. Yeah. And they won due to a wind which suddenly whirled up while they were fighting. Just as when Constantine contended with the enemies of the uh. church. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd found Ding! an illusion. <laughs> that miserable kinglet of scoundrels who had been crowned in Ireland was captured there in battle. When asked what audacity had possessed him to dare to commit such a crime, he admitted that infinite persons of his own rank had coerced him. So I'm, I'm not quite sure whether he means. I mean, presumably, we're talking about Lambert Simnel. And okay. he's saying that John de la Pole made him do it. But I'm not quite sure whether oh, off okay. his own rank, does he mean if, if his own social station or just the, who was on his side? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either because I still don't understand John de la Pole's actions in that. Mm. Like, the only thing I could think of was that he was willing to get – he was already in place by the time John de la Pole stepped in. Yeah. So he couldn't say, well, I'm going to take over because this kid is – like Lambert would have been a higher rank than him and closer to the throne. Well, he was king. Yeah. He was and actually he could have crowned, had... wasn't he? So Yes. And he could have had an accident later. I think that was on the cards, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it had to have been. That's the only thing I can think of for I can't why see he would agree to that. John de la Pole just, you know, just acting as subordinate for oh, somebody no. that he must have known was, was a... fake. Was, yeah. Then questioned about his family and status of his parents, he... Lambert Simnel confessed that they were thoroughly mean individuals, every one. Is that what you say about your parents? My parents are thoroughly mean individuals <laughs> with low occupations. In fact, Andre says, they are not worthy to be included in this history. Hmm. Full stop. Possibly an organ mender, if I remember. That's right. The Earl of Lincoln was slain and the king <laughs> lost only a few of his men in battle. That's always the case, hmm. isn't it? Yes. I think from what we've 
we've heard. I mean, the, the number of the poor Irish that were killed, the numbers were hugely slanted towards, towards yes. them, wasn't it? Andre then goes on at length about how other poets might talk of the Phrygian destruction, the chariots of Thessaly, Priam, oh, Hector, Scipio, etc., etc., etc. That sounds like such a tedious book to read. <laughs> Ending, I sing the triumphs of Henry the Seventh, the Divine Prince. And so he's saying Henry's up there with all those classical types, which is quite a, something for, for a humanist to admit. And he goes on, for the prince generously loves my little verses. Of course he does. Yes, he does. Since they're all about how wonderful Henry is. <laughs> a French legation arrives and sues for peace. But Henry wasn't happy with the terms, which infuriated the ambassador, Gagon, to such an extent that he wrote a poem about it. Oh, gosh. What is with him and his poetry? Then there was... Well, notice it's Gagon. It's not Goga. It's Gaga. Gaga, I think it is. He wrote the poem, and then there's a bit of a poem wars, with the Pope's legate wading in with witty rejoinder about sheep, and the royal secretary oh, joining in with a galling jest in that marvellous manner of his, and then the eloquent <laughs> orator Vitelli coming up with a biting epigram. Oh and Andre goodness. goes into this in huge detail. So I got the impression he was far more at home with poem wars than he was in real wars, which he had no interest in whatsoever. Wow. What is that? It still happens in an area of France where it is spoken word poetry battles. I don't know. I was thinking sort of rap battle type. Yeah, these are the original rap battles, and they go back to Eleanor of Aquitaine's time. Sort of troubadour troub type thing. Troubadour? So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Something like that. Well, it, Andre loves it. He's right in there. The, Fr <laughs> the French ambassador, Gaga, who had kicked all this off, went off in a rage, and Henry said that they must prepare for war, which Ooh. is a big leap. Yes. And I can't help thinking that these poems have sort of exacerbated the situation quite Probably. a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> it seemed all right, and then suddenly there were poems, and now we're ready for war. Andre goes on to say that the ambassadors from various important men, including Maximilian, arrived. But he says, I should pass over the reasons for such a great embassy because it doesn't concern me to speak about royal personages, especially when they pertain very little to my subject. What's your subject then? <laughs> <laughs> of which I gather that he'd not taken much interest at the time and had now forgotten. Oh, but okay. So, yeah, I mean, his subject is Henry. Mm -hmm. So the embassies would have had a fair bit to do with his subject, you'd have yes. thought. Then he says, I may venture to assert one thing, that Maximilian had formerly brought very grave claims of injury against our king, which I shall relate more suitably in another place. But he never does. So we don't know what it oh. is. <laughs> <laughs> he's failing on so many levels. <laughs> I mean, it's assumed that he's talking about the economic sanctions put on Burgundy by Henry oh, okay. as a result of yes, Maximilian's support sense. for Perkin. But that's all we get from Andre at that point, and he never explains. Oh, jeez. So anyway, we're into 19... No, we're not. We're into 1492. Henry goes <laughs> to France. Before Henry set sail for France, he made a speech. Oh, of course. Is it poetry too? It's quite a short speech. Oh, let's go. Well, I'm not <laughs> going to read it. <laughs> he said he was entering on a monumental and arduous war. Which he wasn't, but he wasn't to know that at that point, I suppose, was he? 
true. There's no mention of John Devere trying to butt into this one. He learned his lesson last time, I think. <laughs> this is the one where he just gets paid a lot of money and goes home, right? Mm. Yes, and people get angry. Okay. But this is the one where one of the few journeys across the channel that seems to have gone without a hitch. Andre says that Henry accepted Charles' peace proposals because he had no desire to shed human blood. Which may have been the case, but, you know, there was money involved as well, wasn't there? As you said, <laughs> the Treaty of Atarpla was handing over large quantities of dosh. <sighs> yeah, I mean, either Andre didn't know about the compensation paid to Henry or that Charles promised not to harbour any more pretenders to the English throne. But he had to have known because everybody knew. That's why everybody was so angry. Mm. Mm. Well, you get the feeling with Andre that for a chronicler of current affairs, he has very little interest in current affairs. <laughs> I wonder what he ultimately thought the job was to do. Uh, I really wonder. I think he thought the job was to play up Henry's. I mean, Henry might have said, actually said to him, it's all a bit ropey for me here. Can you not write something that makes Ooh, me look yeah. a bit more as if I'm meant to be here? Yes. As far as Andre is concerned, Henry hurried home, partly because winter was approaching, which it was, it was November, but also because the Queen was missing him. Aww. He said that when the King returned, people were everywhere making merry and rejoicing and singing congratulations on behalf of the victorious King's return from France. I don't remember that. I just remember a lot of grumbling. Yes. People just thought he'd taken the money and run, didn't they? Yes, which he did. Andre <laughs> then writes a poem to the muse, of the type that's usually recited following a successful battle. Hmm. In fact, there are four of them, and they're all quite long. <laughs> so now enter the baddie again. What people commonly say is true. Envy never dies. This adage may shed some light on the shameful crime that I shall now relate. For Margaret of Burgundy, who possessed a healthy respect for the royal family, by which I presume he means the Yorkist royal family, not the present one, and who had been a second Juno to the king, because Juno had opposed Aeneas and Henry was meant to be descended from Aeneas, was not content with her old mortal hatred, but conceived a new and unprecedented scheme against him. And because a woman's wrath is eternal, she tried to channel her undying hatred onto the subjects of the king. So now we're talking about Perkin Warbeck here. Yes. That she could only implement her poisonous plan if she would lure certain insignificant and devious individuals. See, and these kind of comments are why I really want to every so often cheat and pick my own out of the box. Because <laughs> really, was she like that? I'm. It's going to be so different if we find a history that's exactly the opposite of all this. We find out she was fantastic. She was but meant to be very charitable, wasn't she? Yeah, well, also, she was regent for quite a while because she was successful and trusted. So there's got to be another side to that. I think so. Well, there's certainly another side to Andre's take on it. (laughs) For all we know, he thinks she has horns. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the version of the Perkin story. So it's a pity I didn't read this at the beginning, because then I'd have known I wouldn't have to bother with any of the others. These men fashioned one Peter of Tournai, who had been brought up in England by Edward, as former Jew later baptised by Edward IV, that's Sir Edward Brampton, if you remember him, as that king's younger son. 
Pretending that he had been reared in different countries, at last they brought him to France to Charles VIII, or rather the French, as some say, to terrify the king, lured him, Perkin, from Ireland with great promises. So we can see that even at this point, there's several points of view. <laughs> but since he realised that his imposture was not being well received by the French, Juno, that's Auntie Margaret, mm-hmm. recalled him. I know he says recalled, not called, implying that he'd already been at Margaret's Oh, court. yes. Okay. And he set out for Flanders. Later, aided by a favourable wind, he was brought back to Ireland to be crowned. No, he wasn't. I'm not sure whether the Andre was muddling him up with Simnel here. Lambos. Does it, I wonder where he got his information. I think from a very dodgy memory. Mm-hmm. It would be like if I tried to do these things by memory. I mean, I would be constantly saying, oh, God, who, who was it again? Oh, what was it? <laughs> There he persuaded a large number of the island's barbarians, um, thanks Andre, <laughs> yeah. with rash allurements. For he explained and repeated from his repaired memory everything about the time of Edward IV. And he also recited from memory the names of the king's close friends and servants as he'd been instructed by the conspirators, or as he recalled from his own childhood. And Andre is not suggesting here that he might be Richard, Duke of York, obviously, but that he'd picked all this stuff up while living with Sir Edward Brampton. Ah, okay. That wasn't too clear from his discussion. (laughs) (laughs) By this time, the deception had grown into such a believable fiction that even prudent men and great nobles were induced to believe him. What followed next? False prophets spread prophecies far and wide about that deceiver which completely blinded the eyes of the lower classes and the common people. This is translated from the Latin, so I'm not quite sure that class would be the right word. So I think he is just as confused as we were. Okay. Then we get the description of the landing at Deal, but with the emphasis on the loyalty of the people from Kent rather than the free beer story. And when the king heard how Perkins' supporters had been captured, he made a long speech. Of course he did. I wonder if they actually did, though, because if you think about it, it's not like they have television or radio to put out news. Perhaps speeches were required. He might have sent out a proclamation, I suppose. You know how long they are. Yeah. Yeah. In less than 2,000 words. Yes. (laughs) And then there's what's called Juno's speech. And that's, again, Margaret of Burgundy. And that's definitely a fabrication, because as far as we know, Andre had never had any contact with her. It starts oh, right. off, is it true, my nephew, that's Perkin, that the fates oppose our efforts? Can it be that Henry's foresight always foils us? <laughs> he is too smart. <laughs> yep, so Margaret's met her match in Henry, even though Henry, as we know, had been busy elsewhere and knew nothing of the invasion until after it happened. <laughs> and Margaret even describes Henry as the Trojan heir, given... Credence to oh. Andre's story about Henry's descent from Aeneas. Right. Uh, Sir William Stanley. Andre says that Sir William Stanley offered large sums of money both to protect Perkin and to lead him to the throne. I mean, this may have been the case, but in all the books I read about Perkins, Stanley's crime was to say that he wouldn't fight Perkin if he turned out to be the Richard Duke of York. Yes. He did, however, send his seals to Flanders, which is pretty damning. Whoops. Yeah. Andre was quick to add a proviso to his condemnation of William Stanley. But even though he was descended from the famous Stanley line, his fault should not be laid to the blame of other distinguished men of his rank. For as the Apostle says, 
The potter fashions some vessels to honour and some to dishonour out of the same lump. In other words, Henry's father-in-law, Thomas Stanley, is in no way to blame what his brother got up to. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. We don't know yet because we've not done him, but... Nope. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, Andre says that Sir Robert Clifford defected from the king and fled to Flanders. Oh, I can never say that. Fled to Flanders. <laughs> it seems to crop up so often as well, doesn't it? Runway. And he was the one who may have been spying for the king from the very start, but Andre obviously doesn't hold with that theory, or it hasn't occurred okay. to him. Andre whizzes through Perkin's time in Ireland and Scotland, although he does say that Perkin got married, although Andre says he, he can't remember her name. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she says that. I can't, I can't remember what her name was. Poor Lady Gordon. She didn't even put, he doesn't even put a gap to fill in later. He just says, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> 1497, Perkin invades Cornwall. Andre says, when our most serene king heard of that worthless fellow's arrival, well, look, he said with a smile, we're being attacked by that prince of rascals. (laughs) (laughs) Andre says that Henry sent troops not to fight against the scoundrel, but to protect the fatherland and the people from disasters. Why is it now the fatherland? I don't know. I was just dodgy. I don't like the word fatherland. We only don't like it because that's what Nazis call yeah. Germany, and everybody else uses motherland, mm. I think. Mother Russia. Yeah, I always I think Russia for being... motherland. Yeah, I don't think we've got, yeah. we, haven't got we haven't got one. No, yours a nanny. <laughs> I remember um, Alan Bennett saying that when Margaret Thatcher started using the, the phrase this land rather than this country, he said at that point, I knew she'd gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Andre goes on to say that he can't remember anything else about the invasion. I mean, why would he? He's only the court chronicler. Yeah. The dissolute scoundrel despaired of his situation and saw that he could neither withstand our king nor escape his clutches. Overcome with a feeble heart and womanish fears and destitute of courage, he made a speech. I kind of feel like he nailed that one on the head, though, because Perkin does come across that way. I don't... Maybe. I mean, it's so hard to tell, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, he he managed to tick off everybody and never actually go to battle and had to run away from his own side. He ran away from his own side at least three times, didn't he? Yeah, so he was scaredy-catty, just kept running. Mm. But we don't know how much he wanted to be there in the first place, do we? Anyway, let's let's not get into Perkin again. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Perkin's speech to his Cornish troops, or part of it. You see that the virtue and favour of King Henry, most victorious of kings, have so united the will of God that all our strength is utterly useless and trifling and crippled and wasted against his. And Perkin goes on to say, To speak truthfully, although I postponed your stipend until today, the fact is I've got nothing left, not even a farthing. (laughs) Which is true. (laughs) Then he says, In truth, I'm not the son of England. Which, as far as I know, he never told his troops that. No. <laughs> and this is where we heard that the royal servants beat him black and blue. But in this translation, they derided his laughable appearance. Because remember, he's in cloth of gold. Rather right. than the other translation I read derided his ridiculous head. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it started making me think of a Mike Myers' movie. I'm trying to read. I think it's my... I married an axe murderer where they're talking about that kid that has a huge head. Oh, right. I don't know that one. <laughs> oh, it's pretty funny. 
Andre admits that he doesn't know what Henry and Perkins said to each other since it was in private. And anyway, his feeble intellect does not grasp the wise king's many prudent designs. Mm. But in Andre's version, Perkins told his tale and Henry wrote it down rather than the other way around, which was an equal possibility. Yep. Henry then calls Perkins' wife to him and comforts her with wise words. He told Perkins to tell her what he just told Henry and the wife, Catherine Gordon, because I can remember her name, even if Andre <laughs> can't, replies. She's talking to um, her husband. Oh, treacherous man, was it because you wished to seduce me with your deceitful stories that you abducted me from my paternal hearth? How wretched I am. What except death is left for me now my virtue is gone? It seems like there is nothing left for me except that which this mighty and merciful king promised. Hmm. And she, goes, she leaves to go to Elizabeth of York, and Andre says her guardians, moreover, were mm -mm, men of surpassing honesty and goodness. <laughs> so, we won't name them. <laughs> whoever they were, they were really good. <laughs> the wow. king then gives a speech to the Cornishman in a this is going to hurt me more than it'll hurt you type way. Aww. And Andre says that Henry did spare their lives. And he goes on to say, and although they were all bound together, they raised a shout and sigh and gave greatest thanks to the king. As you would if someone's just told you they're not going to kill you. Yes. And that's where it stops. Okay. Apparently, Andre abandoned <laughs> it for four years on the death of Prince Arthur. Hmm. And it's assumed that Andre abandoned his history rather than intending to finish it here, since apparently he meant it to be a history of Henry VII and Louis XII of France. Oh. And Louis XII never gets mentioned. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, following Henry's death, Andre faded from court and he died in 1521 or 22. And his history was used as a source up until the 19th century, but then history became a bit more rigorous at that point. Okay. And his cavalier attitude to chronology and his making up of conversations that he couldn't possibly have pre uh, been privy to had made historians turn away from him. Mind you, he's still quoted in, in books, though, isn't he? Yes. Yes, he is. The biographer of Richard III, Charles Ross, has referred to Andre's description of Richard as elegant toadying to a royal paymaster. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I like that phrase. Daniel Hobbins, who translated the version I read, said, as a repository of facts, the work is mostly, though not entirely, a failure. <laughs> and when Henry's tutor, John Holt, died, Andre should have been the one to replace him because he had been tutor to Arthur, and instead... The post went to an obscure grammarian, William Hone. And why had Andre not been given the post? One reason was that Hone spoke Greek. Another reason was that Andre was not very popular among many people because he guarded access to the king so vehemently that hmm. Erasmus called him Cerberus. Oh, really? Yeah. Some at court were worried that if Andre were to get the post of tutor, they'd never get to see the king at all. I wonder. I wonder how he and... like. I found nothing in Polydor Virgil even mentioning this uh, Bernard Andre. So <laughs> I'm wondering, because Polydor got asked to write the history. So did the king read Bernard Andre's and think, oh, my God, yes. I need another person. Do we have anybody in the room? Could someone come <laughs> and do it properly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there we go. That's the history of the reign of Henry VII, according to the rigorous historicity of Bernard Andre. And that is why, since reading this version, I've dismissed everything that was attributed to him since oh, I come yeah. across him in books. Yeah. Mm. 
basically all you need to do is put in caveats. I'm going to enter this in because people used him in the past, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, I'm very surprised that when you do come across quotes from him, I never, well, they have said a few times, but quite often they just quote him. And nobody <sighs> says, I would take this with a pinch of salt because he's not here to do history. He's here to praise the king. I wonder if they're writing it with the thought that the people reading their book would know that already. I don't know. I didn't know that until I read the book, read his book. Yeah. Just assume <laughs> thought, that if ooh. someone's quoting from a chronicler, that they might know what they're talking about. But yeah. No, I enjoyed reading his book because he keeps thinking, hang on, that didn't happen. He didn't no. say that. <laughs> she didn't do that. <laughs> But I think I'd enjoyed it less if I'd read it before we started doing this podcast because I wouldn't have known all these things. But now we know quite a lot about it. Yes. We can pick up on point. all of these things. And laugh at them. Yes. As people will come and later on and do a podcast about our podcast and laugh at all the things that we've got wrong. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we are not infallible. No. <laughs> so there we go. Well, thank you for listening to Bernard Andre, special episode number four. And I think... Is it Philip next? Philip is next. I think so. Well, we don't have to tell you about the details of the podcast. We don't usually do that on these, do we? We just say goodbye. Yeah, but we do have Patreon. And if you'd like to join us, we would love it. Mm. Uh, we're getting some quite good feedback on the Isabella episodes. Yeah, excellent feedback. Yes. Yeah. If you like the in-depth that we go into, we really went in-depth. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one will be all about the human body on Patreon. Yep. And then we've got Leonardo da Vinci after that, which will also yes, be in-depth, given the thickness of the books that I've already bought on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got almost a shelf for uh, Isabella. Some of them I didn't even reference because I didn't end up using their information. I found it. Others were a bit more clear, mm. that kind of thing. Well, i got one but book yeah. that's about three inches thick on Leonardo, so we shall see. That's going to be exciting, actually. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. So we'll see you then. See you then. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>